The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We pick up here where we left off last week in our uh, walk through the Gospel of Mark, answering this question, who is this man? Who is this man? And did you know that this past week, two professional sports teams were crowned champions of their respective leagues? Any sports fans in the house? Anybody? Yeah? Did you know that the St. Louis Blues beat the Boston Bruins 4-1 to in Game 7 to take home the Stanley Cup and be crowned champions of the National Hockey League? Any hockey fans in the house? They're like, the St. Louis Blues? What? Also this week, the Toronto Raptors beat the Golden State Warriors in six games to take home that Larry O'Brien trophy and be recognized as the best team in the NBA. Two champions, two teams, both that started the season, determined to end the season as champs. They battled back after losses, they fought through injuries, and all the while, keep kept their eyes on the prize, resolved to keep going, resolved to keep scoring, resolved to keep playing at a team and, and ignoring the critics. Nothing would stop them, at least not this year. Now, this is really the, the joy of uh, sports because next season is a whole nother story, right? All the hockey teams that want to win, they can retool to be crowned champions. The Milwaukee Bucks and the other teams of the NBA can retool to try to be the best next year. But beloved, in a greater sense, Jesus began his earthly ministry determined to accomplish his rescue mission. Since his baptism by John, his face has been set on the prize to win a people for his own possession. Every movement has been deliberate. Each multiplication, decisive. Every message, dogmatic, all ministry, definitive. Every miracle displaying the glory of God. His adversaries attacked him everywhere that he went. The rejection was real and painful. But church, write this down. Nothing, nothing will stop Jesus from his mission. Nothing will stop Jesus from his mission. And this is really the point of Mark chapter 6. He has been scorned in his own hometown by those closest to him. He's learned that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And so now Jesus really ups his game by multiplying and sending out his disciples and also taking his own ministry to an entirely another level. As the opposition increases, so do the nature of his miracles. And before us today in Mark 6, verse 30 and beyond, we have really two familiar miracles. If you've been around the church or familiar with the Bible for really any length of time, you are probably familiar with the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 and also his walking on water. They're familiar because of how supernatural they are really how unparalleled in scope. The apostles never replicated them, though Peter tried to. He tried to walk on water, and he obviously failed. 
We hear stories of the sick made well, of even uh, the dead being raised. And some, uh, like in the scriptures, they are obviously true, those things that we hear today. Some may be true, many probably hoaxes, but we don't hear of miracles of this nature. There's too many witnesses to verify. These are too hard to fabricate. But in the two miracles before us today, Jesus sets himself apart from any other person to ever walk this earth. And you'll see precisely why as we walk through these verses. Nothing will stop Jesus from his mission of first here, showing compassion to the helpless showing compassion to the helpless. You ready to read some of these verses? Let's look here at Mark 6, verse 30, and listen as I read them for us. They say this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This is God's word for God's people. Remember, nothing will stop Jesus from his mission of showing compassion to the helpless. Remember here where we jump into this story. The 12 had just been sent out. They'd been sent out on a massive mission to, to take nothing and to take the message of the gospel, the message to repent, and they healed many and did miraculous works. And now they're back, likely after a few months. We don't, we're not necessarily given a time frame, but based on the region, the travel, uh, their ministry, probably a few months, uh, definitely several weeks. And now as you see here in verse 30, they're giving Jesus the report of all that they had done and taught. You've probably had this maybe for work. You've uh, completed a project and then you came back and you reported, here's how it went. And so Jesus being the good discipler, Jesus being one who is apprenticing these disciples, now they come back to give the report. And what does verse 31 tell us? They are fatigued. They're fatigued. They've had long days, long weeks, staying in other homes, no extra clothes to change into, completely dependent upon the Lord for every provision. They are emotionally drained. They're physically exhausted. They've been pouring out spiritually, and it has taken its toll. And so what does Jesus tell them? Let's go away to a desolate place a place away from the people and pressures of ministry. Let us go and rest. Beloved, don't miss this. Rest is right. Rest is right. Resting in the Lord is right. But what, is, what, what happens here? What have we seen all throughout our journey through Mark? They go to rest, massive amounts of ministry have been done, and the crowds continue to come and bombard them, occupying them so much that they can't even get a, a breath to, to, to eat in. So we saw this back in chapter three as well, the same thing, that the crowds pressing upon them, uh, so much so that they can't even get anything to eat, and they are fatigued, they are hungry, they've just gotten back from a journey, and so what do they do? They escape on a boat to the open sea for some peace and quiet. 
If anywhere on the land they are bombarded here now on the sea, they can find some peace and quiet. But what, what, what happens here? What happens? They, they go and look at the verses. Look at verse 32. Uh, they go away to a desolate place. They're trying to escape. But in verse 33, many see them. Many recognize them. The, the people won't be denied. So they run to meet them. What's, what's crazy here is uh, the, the path that they're likely following along the water is only about three to four miles. But the people going around on shore, it's about six to eight miles. They are determined to follow. Jesus and word begins to spread they are talking that Jesus is going he's falling this way and they recognize and they run there on foot from all the towns until he gets ashore and the massive crowd is there to meet them but beloved fatigued followers and helpless sheep won't stop Jesus from showing compassion Look at how he describes Jesus' reaction as he meets the crowd. His compassion, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. See, a common description in the scriptures of people are sheep. And we don't necessarily like that, do we? It's actually used as kind of a pejorative in our, like, you don't want to be a sheeple, right? Don't just follow the masses. You hear that kind of language. And yet, uh, in God's kindness, he uses this as a description of we who uh, are people. And he uses the, the, uh, the, uh, the example or the description of those who lead as shepherds, Jesus being the chief shepherd, that who we follow. And so we are harassed and helpless, as Mark says. They're attacked. We are attacked, unable to defend ourselves. And shepherds are uh, put in place by God to protect his sheep and care for them. Shepherds carry a staff for two reasons. One, to uh, beat away wolves and other predators that would attack sheep. And, others, uh, and another use with the hook is to bring those who are wandering back into the fold. A tool used to both protect and to care for. But you know, apart from a shepherd, we can often look like the picture that uh, is here on the screen for us. We can look like a sheep, kind of like this. I found this picture recently online, and uh, apparently this sheep had wandered away from that shepherd for about six years wandered about and as he did the wool began to grow and continued to grow so much so that you can see the wool forming around his eyes or he can't see the wool began to to grow around his legs and become matted in, in such a way that it constricted his ability to walk and get uh, get away the wool was growing around his neck and so much so that he couldn't even move his head to bend down and eat and to drink. Uh, every day that went by, he just became more and more vulnerable. Not able to sleep for fear of being eaten. But once found by the shepherd, within 30 minutes that coat was off. Food and water was given to him. He was protected and now able to rest, all because of the compassionate care of a shepherd for the helpless animal. And though we hate to admit it, oftentimes this is us, isn't it? 
This is us. We, we're, we're independent people trying to care for ourselves on our own. We can do it. I've got this mentality. Today, it's even, it's even a, a celebrated thing under the, under the guise of self-care. In a day past, it was, it was self-help. But beloved, let me just tell you, any self, anything, self-sufficiency, self-reliancy is really just a message from the pit. A message that has been preached and lied about since the very beginning. Our care is from the Lord. We need a shepherd, the chief shepherd. The only self anything in the scripture that is, that is, that, that is of God, that is of the spirit is self-control. Saying no to our sin, saying no to our independence. For if we try to do it on our own, we are harassed and helpless and we end up looking like this. And this is the condition that all of us come to Christ in. And what does he do? Does he cast the sheep away? Say, hey, this is, this is what you wanted. What's so glorious about this passage is that Jesus can see us like this and he still doesn't cast us out. He knows all about us and it's his compassion that brings us in. It's his compassion that, that uh, draws us back, that gives us that real deep soul rest, even in the midst of chaos, if only we would look to him for it. If only we would look to the Lord and to tell him, to tell him all that we've done, to give it all before him and lay it at his feet. This is the invitation of, of Matthew 11. You're probably familiar with this. He says to, to his disciples, come to me all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, beloved, nothing will stop Jesus from his mission of showing compassion to the helpless, us, us. We are the helpless one. But this part of his rescue mission, when we, this is part of it, and when we come to him, when we come on these terms, when we look for our rest in the Lord, we also find that Jesus offers true satisfaction. He offers true satisfaction. See, look how this story continues on. Join me here as nothing will stop Jesus from offering true satisfaction. Let's pick it up in verse 35. Let me read it how the story continues. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, so that they sat in groups by 100s and by 50s. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. 
and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word for God's people. Jesus has compassion on them. Now, after this long teaching session, it's grown late. It's likely this is the afternoon, evening. It's likely between 3 and 6 p.m. And the folks were hungry. They were hungry. And this wasn't just like a few dinner guests over, right? These were the people who had run and gathered all around. Word had spread through the hills, the countryside, and they have now uh, cascaded upon this desolate place, so much so that the crowd swelled to 5,000 men, it says. We're also told that it includes uh, women and children as well. Matthew's account. And so if you figure that out, most 5,000 men, they're probably married. That's another 5,000, maybe a couple kids, some others, that there's likely, uh, they estimate, 20,000 people gathered here on this shoreline. That, that's a crazy amount of people, y'all. Like, just to put that into perspective, the AT&T Center, anybody ever been in the AT&T Center for a Spurs game, a rodeo, a concert, something like that? There are 18,581 seats in that building. Plus the, you know, the employees that work there and the concession stands and security and all that. And so that's just to kind of give you a picture. If you've been in there and seen that place full of how many people are now gathered around Jesus. And that's a lot. That's a mind-blowing number. And so the disciples here, they're they're hungry themselves. It's come evening. They recognize the problem and they offer a solution, don't they? They, they're, They're good disciples. They say, hey, people are hungry. It's getting late. Let's send them away to go get some food. But Jesus offers his own solution, doesn't he? He says, you feed them. You ever been in like a work meeting like that? trying to overcome something, some deficit within the company or whatever, and it's like, this is, this is insurmountable. And your boss says, you figure it out. Oh, well, okay. They do the quick math. I mean, they're not uh, dummies here. They do the quick math. They're like, to feed all these people, it's gonna be about eight months worth of salary. A 200 denarii, that's a denarii, is, a denarius is one day's uh, labor. So if you worked hard, faithful labor or fair wage was one denarii. And so 200 is about eight months. So if you do the conversion, you know, uh, that's, that's a pretty cheap meal. It's like, it averages out to about a dollar or two uh, per person in, you know, b- based on our kind of average uh, annual income. And so even that is a, is a cheap meal. And so Jesus, they're like, well, yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money. None of them just have that much savings and are willing to spend it on this one meal here. And so he sends them to go find out, like, what's out there. And John 6 tells us that only one boy had enough foresight to pack a lunch to come with him. (laughs) Five loaves and two fish. That was really equaled one meal. You know, it's not necessarily, we can't think of like a loaf like our own bread loaves. Like, wow, this is a lot. No, it was really actually probably like a cake. And so then these fish aren't, you know, like the wall hangers that us fishermen always envision that they're catching. These are small little pickled fish and little things. Five loaves and two fish was enough to feed one person. They've got one meal. And in verse 39, really the first miracle happens is somehow Jesus is able to command them and they sit in groups of 150s. 
That, that just is, is a miracle in itself, to have 20,000 people and to be able to organize the people to sit in the green grass. Did you notice that little detail in there? I love the details of Mark like that. These eyewitnesses accounts are, as Peter is talking to Mark and relaying the events, you can just envision like Peter telling Mark about it and saying, oh man, it was just, you couldn't believe the people and they're all on the green grass. It indicates it was in the springtime. At the, that, that this wasn't like in some desert place, but it was here where the grass is growing. And as they do it then, uh, they organize, they sit in these groups, and he begins to distribute the food after blessing it. A blessing that probably went something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And out of nothing... In the same way that the earth was formed and our faith was birthed, the loaves and the fish begin to flow in supernatural abundance. So much so that they all ate and were satisfied. Do you see that? They all ate, all 20,000 of them, all ate and were satisfied. And you remember the hungry disciples? Do you remember the hungry disciples that couldn't get anything to eat? Now they all have an overflowing basket for each one of them. 12 basketfuls of food. Do you think that was some random number of leftovers? No, Jesus knowing the care, the fatigue of his disciples, and he is, here, here's a whole basketful now. Beloved finite followers and hungry crowds will not stop Jesus from offering true satisfaction. The disciples didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources to meet the enormity of the physical need. But that never limited the Lord, nor was it ever his primary mission. The, the vast majority of these people were just here for the party. They were there for the free food, not the preaching, nor the freedom found in faith. And yet Jesus fed them anyways. They, they may have been thinking, man, was this a man like Moses? We begin to see some of the glimpses if you understand your Old Testament, which they would have done. Here's a man who's able to do unparalleled miracles. Here's now a man who organizes the, the, the masses into groups of 50s and 100s, just like Moses did. Here's a man now who is feeding them literally from heaven, just as God fed his people as they wandered through the wilderness. They think this was a man like Moses, but beloved, Jesus is far greater than Moses. He is able to offer something greater, something truly satisfying. That is life eternal. He is here to offer this uh, eternal life through faith. And every, in a few hours, every one of them will be hungry again. But as John 6 tells us, Jesus is the bread of life. If we believe in him, our souls will be satisfied like never before in a way that bread and fish can never satisfy. This is the joy of following Christ. This is why he came. This is, nothing will stop him. Nor will, anything, nor will anything stop him from displaying his glory. Nothing will stop him from displaying his glory. We're taking a big passage here. We're taking two massive miracles, but I want you to see how these fit together in the, in the overall picture that, that Mark is attempting to show us and answering this question, who is this man? Jesus has come to display his glory. Let's pick up our story now in verse 45 and continue working through it. Follow along here as I read. Immediately, 
says, after these people are just been fed, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is God's word for God's people. Now you see here, the people have just been taught, and they've just been fed, and now it's time to go. Evening has come, and it seems that the disciples themselves were reluctant to go. Look what, look what verse 45 said. It says, immediately after they've all been fed, all that's happened, he made, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go. You know, it's kind of like parents, when it's time to go and get in the car, sometimes we have to make our children get in the car and get in their car seats, right? We have to force them. They were, some, for some reason, reluctant. And so now, with a little push, Jesus sends them off in the boat on their way to Bethsaida. Bethsaida, it's in Hebrew, it's house of fish. Beth, or Beth, in Hebrew, is house. Seda, uh, fish. So like Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, house of God. And so here's the house of fish. It's a coastal town. And there's actually some uh, dis, uh, dispute and debate for, among scholars as to where exactly this is. There's kind of a traditional uh, location on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, but as we kind of follow the events here, it seems that they were actually going to the northwest side, and there's some kind of archaeological evidence of it being there, but if you go, you can't actually find it. And I think that's actually, you can go and do some uh, of your own study. Uh, later, go to Mark 11, when Jesus pronounces woe upon certain cities. Bethsaida is one of them. Woe to you, for if the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities, they would have repented and come to me. But these miracles being done in these, these regions, and they still reject the Lord, I think part of God's judgment upon them is the fact that we can't find uh, the cities uh, even now, even now. But this is where they're going. This is where they're going. That was kind of like a little commercial break for you. But look what he does. He dismisses the crowd, and then Jesus, he goes and retreats up the mountain to seek his Father in heaven. He's done this multiple times. We saw this back in Mark 1. After long days, Jesus goes to commune with the Father somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. And look in verse 48 there. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He can see the disciples out on the sea, and they are on the struggle boat. They're on the struggle boat. Look, there's a strong headwind that they are making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Here are these expert fishermen out there on the sea and every stroke is a struggle. Several years ago, uh, I went on a kayaking trip on the Devil's River. A picture here uh, on the screen just to show you a bit of the beauty of the first 45 miles or so. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous trip. If you, anybody ever went on a kayaking trip on the Devil's River, I would highly recommend it. Got it's 
about five days, four nights, no cell phone reception, uh, only a handful of way, uh, spots on the way that you can actually get out because most of it is just cliffs uh, like that. But it's a beautiful trip. And as we were going on the last morning, we were about uh, three miles out and uh, the Devil's River empties into Lake Amistad which is right near Del Rio on the border of Texas and Mexico. Big, big lake. And as we began to uh, come out uh, into that last little portion, the river began to widen and the wind (laughs) began to pick up. So much so that every stroke was a struggle. If you even let up, you just began to go backwards. And you would put your head into it, get your back into it, stroking deep and hard and go and go and go and have to let up. We way back we go. And we were going, there was like six of us here. We had a boy who was about 14 and older man that was uh, in his 70s. And, uh, and it, was, it was a hard, hard haul. So what did we do? Well, we found a place to get up and we climbed to the top of the mountain and one guy had a sat phone uh, because there's no cell phone reception out there. And this was like in 2009 or something. And so Cell phone reception wasn't even that great and still wasn't out in those parts. And so we, we called in the cavalry. <laughs> we called in a, uh, to a marina who brought out a, a pontoon and uh, came and rescued us and uh, hauled our kayaks back in. And they, uh, with the power of the motor, <laughs> brought us for the rest of the way back in for those uh, three miles. But we were on the struggle boat. We were on the struggle boat. You ever feel that way? And talk about deflating out here on the water, fighting and fighting, every bit of energy exerted, but little or no progress. Dads, you ever feel that way in your parenting? That every instruction, every lesson, every attempt is a fight? You ever feel that way in your marriage? It's just like you're making headway painfully. You're trying, you're trying, you're trusting the Lord. He's put you into this and you're going and seems there is little or no progress. You ever feel that way at work? Working your uh, heart out, trying your best, trying to uh, accomplish the things that are on your uh, responsibilities, on your to-do list, and it's getting nowhere. After rowing their hearts out here six to eight hours or so, look, it says it's about the fourth watch, which is three to six a.m., Jesus just comes strolling by, unaffected by the wind nor the water. And look what it says there. See that in verse 48? Underline that. He meant to pass by them. We read that and we're like, what? Don't you see their struggle? Don't you see what they're doing? The strain against the oars? We see this in our own life. We say, Christ, don't you see the struggles? But church, take your eyes off the waves. Take your eyes off the struggle and see Christ. Don't read that sentence through the eyes of fear and disappointment. Read that sentence with the eyes of faith. 
What do we know about Jesus? What has been demonstrated all along up to this point, all throughout the scriptures? It is that he is good, he is faithful, he is compassionate, he is satisfying, he is powerful. It isn't as if he is all of a sudden changed as if he went up to the mountain and had some sort of identity crisis and came down and now is a different person. No, Jesus means to pass them by in the same way that the Lord passed by Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Don't read this through faith or through fear. Read it in faith. Hear these words, just, you can turn there if you want or just listen to Exodus 33. The Lord, this is verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. That should just blow our minds. But Moses said, verse 18, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then in verse 34, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Here in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see the glory of God, but in Mark 6, on the sea, no one is asking. Jesus is just displaying his glory because that's why he came. He is here making a profound statement. I am God. I am God. His glory, the glory of God is the result of what happens when God is present and at work. It's been said that uh, uh, glory is to God as heat is to fire. It's what is felt, what is left behind when we come near fire. We feel the heat. And we experience God's glory through transformation as God is present and moving through the proclamation of his word, through the, uh, through the worship of God in spirit and in truth, through the unceasing prayers of his people and through the unashamed witness of his people. God is at work and moving and not even fickle followers or hard hearts could stop him. 
His response to them displays it even further. And so we, we see a sentence like that and we see, no, Jesus is coming walking on water, meaning to display the glory of God, that he is God. And then he verbalizes it. Look at their response. They, they see him and what do they do? They're terrified. They cry out. They think it's a ghost. Well, of course they do. They, 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 they're freaked out. And Jesus hears them and then he says these profound words, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And what your English Bible kind of veils here, the Greek is very clear. I am is here. It says it is I likely. But what this is, this is, this is I am. This, this, is, this is Exodus 3, y'all. Do you see this? Do you see what, what's happening here? This is God revealing himself, the self-existent one the one who is in the burning bush who revealed himself to Moses and Moses then in Exodus 3 says, well, who should I say has sent me? And he says, I am that I am is sending you. The one who is undefinable, the one who is self-existent is now here. The one who is not limited by outside forces nor dependent upon outside help is the one who is here to rescue them in the midst of their obedient straining against the oars. God is here, and he is unaffected, and he is here to calm the wind. See, God is the one who's unlimited, but we are, aren't we? We're the ones who limited, he is not. And because he is, we can then have the courage that he commands them and not cower like he encourages them to do. See, the problems of the world don't sideline Jesus like they do us. When we see the glory of God, when we see his active power and presence, we can do one of two things. We can bow and worship, or our hearts can be hardened because we don't understand what is going on. Aren't you, aren't you intrigued, at least, by how that passage ends here? Like they see all this, God, uh, Jesus has just told them that he is God and the wind has ceased. He's gotten to the boat with them now and they're utterly astonished, but they don't understand and so their hearts are hardened. These are the same people that he just sent out with the gospel message. I mean, that's a lot like us, isn't it? We, we get sent out, we do what we're supposed to do and then we get in the midst of difficulties and things and we don't understand what's going on and our hearts get hardened towards the Lord because of the disappointment things that we're experiencing. But what's really interesting is if you read Matthew's account of this, what also happens? If you're familiar with this story, Jesus walks on water, and what does Peter do? It's, Mark doesn't record it here for us, but what does Peter do? He, try, he gets out of the boat. He says, Lord, if it's you, like, come in. So he gets out, and he gets a few steps, and then whoosh, gravity picks up, and down he goes. But at the end of that, it says they worshiped. It says that they worshiped. So is there some errors? Is one of them right, one of them wrong? Well, I think some did worship, some did harden their hearts. And see, we can encounter the Lord. We can know the good news of Jesus Christ. We can know his saving work, his faithful and steadfast love to us. And there's really one of two choices. We can harden our hearts or we can worship him. What will you do today? What will you do today with the understanding of who Jesus is? 
of seeing his miraculous power on display. What will be your response today in the midst of straining at the oars? Straining in obedience. This isn't even, they're, not, they're not even disobeying. Imagine what disobedience would have looked like for them on this night. They would probably be camped out next to a hot campfire, eating their loaves and fish. They would have been having a good old beachside camp out tonight had they disobeyed the Lord. But the Lord made them go, and this is what obedience got them. A night of physical exhaustion after months of pouring out. But the Lord had a greater lesson. The lesson isn't about their response. The lesson isn't here. It's to say, I am is here. The great I am is present. The great I am is present in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the struggles. The great I am is greater than the most insurmountable obstacles in your life. Will you worship? You say, Jesus, I don't... (laughs) tired of doing it my way. I don't understand it, but I'm going to follow you. Or you harden your heart. Continue to reject the Lord. The great preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, has a great quote that says, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. It's the same gospel that brings some to faith and hardens others in their disobedience. But the story doesn't end here, does it? There's a few more verses. But see, not even the hard hearts will stop Jesus from his mission of authenticating his message. Not even their hard hearts will stop Jesus from authenticating his message. Hear these final verses in Mark 6, beginning in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well." This is God's word for God's people. Why are these verses tacked on here? It's like we just had these two massive miracles and now it's like, oh yeah, they continue on and guess what? Same things happened. They're at a place now, Gennesaret, that they hadn't been. It's a region kind of southwest of Capernaum, but they have the same reception. People recognize Jesus. The word spreads all across the land. People run. Do you see that? They're running again just like they did uh, back at the, when we started The crowds of the sick and hurting are gathered from all over the place, villages, cities, countryside. They gather around, and those that encounter Jesus are made well or literally saved. That's how the passage ends. Why is it here? Why why tack these things on here? To show that Jesus won't be stopped? Well, yes, and again to prove that he is who he says he is. Only God can heal this way. What is the purpose of his miracles? They are to authenticate or to prove the message that he was God. The miracles are the proof of his deity, not the point. 
They are the proof of his deity, not the point. He has just claimed to be God. And so now here is additional proof on a regional scale that God is who he says he is, that Christ is God just as he said he is. The message is repent and come to Christ in faith and he will change your life. And the physical healing is proof that he really can change things. We don't chase miracles, we run to Christ, the great I am, the champion of champions, undefeatable and unstoppable, who won for us a prize that was unearned and unattainable, and is a prize that is unable to be taken away. You get that? A prize. Nothing will stop Jesus from accomplishing his mission in this case, and in our own life. Somebody give Jesus praise for that. Amen. Let's pray, pray together. God in heaven, what can we do but uh, almost, God, we're awestruck. We're awestruck at uh, what you've done, what you can do, what you're capable of doing. We, we are utterly astounded by the scope of your power. And yet, God, we're also all too familiar with uh, the, the, the pain and the nature of the things happening in our life. God, it's not lost on me as a, as a pastor and as a shepherd that there are some in here who metaphorically are very hungry, who are, in many senses, fatigued, desperate God and they are looking for you to pass by to display your glory and so God would you do uh, something even uh, uh, more uh, miraculous than the physical healings things. Would you just, even now as we uh, close and as we're praying and as we're about to sing a song, God, would you uh, just make your glory known to us? That we would be a people who worship you. That we would be a people who see you in the splendor of your holiness that see the display of your might and your power and are personally changed and led to worship. God, there may be some in here who, who right now are apart from Christ and you are at work by your spirit in their heart right now, God. Would you lead them to repentance and faith? May today be the day of their salvation. May today they pray and say, God, it's, it's, I've had enough. I give up. I need you. So do that even now. Come through, Lord. Come through. That's our prayer. And pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and be a people that worship.